does it. In most like objects dart across the radar screen at the CAA Traffic Control Center at National Airport for several hours, traveling more than 100 miles an hour. Air Force jet fighters spend several hours chasing the objects plotted on the radar scope. General Sanford, Air Force Intelligence Director, confirms that the objects are not secret American weapons and reiterates the Air Force's obligation to investigate. Here to discuss the so-called flying saucers. The Air Force interest in this problem has been due to our feeling of an obligation to identify and analyze to the best of our ability anything in the air that may have the possibility of threat or menace to the United States. In pursuit of this obligation since 1947, we have received and analyzed between one and 2,000 reports that have come to us from all kinds of sources. Of this great mass of reports, we have been able adequately to explain the great bulk of them, explain them to our own satisfaction. We've been able to explain them as uh, hoaxes, as erroneously identified friendly aircraft, as meteorological or electronic phenomena, or as light aberration. However, there have been a certain percentage of this volume of reports that have been made by credible observers of relatively incredible things. It is this group of observations that we now are attempting to resolve. Our basic difficulty in dealing with these is that there is no measurement of them that makes it possible for us to put them in any pattern that would be profitable for a deliberate a uh, custom sort of analysis to take the next step. We have, as of date, come to only one firm conclusion with respect to this remaining percentage, and that is that it does not contain any pattern of purpose or of consistency that we can relate with any, to any conceivable threat to the United States. We can say that the recent sightings are in no way connected with any secret development by any agency of the United States. Well, I, I, what I remember when I did some checking on that was that there were lots of sightings. There was some nonsense being said, but there were also people who were very concerned about what the heck is going on. I mean, we're not talking about Podunk, we're talking about Washington, D.C. Shoot them down if they don't land when instructed to do so. That was part of Air Force regulations, yes. Uh, think about that. Scary. I mean, well, what, what struck me is uh, among the pilots who died were people who'd had over uh, uh, more than 50 missions in Korea. You know, these are experienced pilots is what I'm saying. So what's going on? I don't know. But it is something to be worried about. Going on, bro. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Oh, I think, dude. That's not our LNS, though, is it? It's not. That is the LNS, dude. Well, if there's like another thing, it's rotating.
It was 11.40 p.m. on Saturday night, July 19, 1952, about seven weeks prior to the day of the close encounter in Flatwoods, West Virginia. In the control tower at Washington National Airport, Ed Nugent saw seven pale violet blips on his radar screen. What were they? Not planes. At least not any planes that were supposed to be there. There were no known aircraft in the area. Nugent summoned his boss, Harry G. Barnes, the head of National's air traffic controllers. "'Here's a fleet of flying saucers for you,' Nugent said, half-joking. Upstairs, in the tower's glass-enclosed top floor, controller Joe Zacco saw a strange blip streaking across his radar screen. It wasn't a bird. It wasn't a plane. What was it? He looked out the window and spotted a bright light hovering in the sky. He turned to his partner, Howard Conklin, assistant chief of Washington National's control tower, who was sitting three feet away. "'Look at that bright light,' Zacco said. "'If you believe in flying saucers, that sure could be one.' And then the light took off, zooming away at an incredible speed. "'Did you see that?' Conklin said. "'What the hell was that?' Conklin, many years later, speaking with journalist Dan Gilgoff, said, We were tracking a flight that had just taken off when all of a sudden we had another target show up. It was very erratic. It went left and right. We knew it wasn't an airplane because an airplane flies in one direction. But it was a strong signal, just like an airplane. Then a man named Harry Barnes in the ARTC center below called us in the tower. He wanted to know if we had seen whatever it was he saw, whatever... It was. It was Saturday night, July 19, 1952, one of the most famous dates in the bizarre history of UFOs. Two of the objects, as reported in Gaia, in the article titled, The 1952 UFO Incident Explained, the article dated January 22, 2017. Two of the objects hovered over the White House, with another one over the Capitol. The controllers at both airports began tracking the objects, which they estimated to be traveling at about 130 miles per hour when they suddenly disappeared from their radar screens. Then they appeared again, now zipping all around the sky. One made a 90-degree turn, and another went suddenly in reverse, both maneuvers that no American plane could make at that time. Before the night was over, an airline captain, S.C. Pierman, a 17-year veteran, who was waiting on the tarmac in the cockpit of his DC-4 at National, now called Reagan International, was waiting for instructions for Capital Air Flight 807 to take off. Tower radioed him and asked if he was seeing anything. There's one, and there it goes, was his answer. He took off and over a 14-minute period, flying between Herndon and Martinsburg, West Virginia. Pierman would see six bright lights streak across the sky at tremendous speed. They were, he said, like falling stars without tails. Controller Barnes would tell a reporter for a New York newspaper a few days later, They acted like a bunch of small kids out playing. It was helter-skelter, as if directed by some innate curiosity. At times, they moved as a group or a cluster. At other times, as individuals. As radar at the two local Air Force bases, Andrews and Bowling, picked up the UFOs, two Air Force F-94 jets scrambled out of Newcastle, Delaware, streaked over Washington searching for flying saucers. When the F-94s appeared, just after 3 a.m., the UFOs 
disappeared. At Andrews Air Force Base, Controller William Brady looked out the control tower window and saw what looked like an orange ball of fire trailing a tail. It was, he later told Air Force investigators, like nothing he had ever seen before. At National, Conklin looked out his window and saw what he recalls as a whitish-blue light that emanated from a solid object that was round with no distinguishing marks such as wings or a nose or a tail. It looked, he said, like a saucer. The mysterious crafts disappeared by dawn on Sunday morning, July 20th, 1952. Washington, D.C. had been visited. By Wednesday, there was one murky front-page headline in the Washington Post, Radar spots air mystery objects here, admitting that local air controllers had picked up some strange blips. And that began the story that was to become the nation's biggest UFO flap, despite the U.S. Air Force's decision to cover it up as best they could. The motive being that in the best interest of our national defense, there was no reason to be seen acting panicky after seeing a few small crafts, the origin of which we weren't sure. There was no gain in panicking the American public, and no gain in admitting that there were things happening in the sky that we couldn't explain. The possibility that these could have been Russian-made was always just beyond the door of possibility at that time. So, silence was requested. Then, a week later, it happened all over again. More UFOs on the radar screens. More jets scrambled over Washington. At 8.15 p.m. on Saturday, July 26th, 1952, a pilot and stewardess on a National Airlines flight into Washington observed some strange lights above their plane. Within minutes, both radar centers at National Airport and the radar at Andrews Air Force Base were tracking more unknown objects. A master sergeant at Andrews visually observed the objects. He later said that, quote, these lights did not have the characteristics of shooting stars. There were no trails. They traveled faster than any shooting star I have ever seen. Meanwhile, Albert M. Chop, the press spokesman for Project Blue Book, arrived at National Airport and, due to security concerns, denied several reporters' requests to photograph the radar screens. He then joined the radar center personnel. By this time, 9.30 p.m., the radar center was picking up unknown objects in every sector. At times, the objects traveled slowly. At other times, they reversed direction and moved across the radar scope at speeds calculated at up to 7,000 miles per hour. At 11.30 p.m., two U.S. Air Force F-94 Starfire jet fighters from Newcastle Air Force Base in Delaware arrived over Washington. Captain John McHugo, the flight leader, was vectored towards the radar blips, but he saw nothing despite repeated attempts. However, his wingman, Lieutenant William Patterson, did see four white glows and chase them. He later said that, quote, I tried to make contact with the bogies below 1,000 feet. I was at my maximum speed. I ceased chasing them because I saw no chance of overtaking them. End quote. According to Albert Chop, when ground control asked Patterson if he saw anything, Patterson replied, quote, I see them now, and they're all around me. What should I do? And nobody answered, because we didn't know what to tell them. End quote. After midnight on July 27th, Major Dewey Fournay, Project Blue Book's liaison at the Pentagon, and Lieutenant John Holcomb, a United States Navy radar specialist, arrived at the radar center at National Airport. During the night, 
Lieutenant Holcomb received a call from the Washington National Weather Station. They told him that a slight temperature inversion was present over the city, but Holcomb felt that the inversion was, quote, not nearly strong enough to explain the good and solid returns on the radar scopes, end quote. Fournay relayed that all those present in the radar room were convinced that the targets were most likely caused by solid metallic objects. There had been weather targets on the scope too, he said, but this was a common occurrence and the controllers were paying no attention to them. Two more F-94s from Newcastle Air Force Base were scrambled during that night. One pilot saw nothing unusual. The other pilot saw a white light which vanished when he moved towards it. Additionally, civilian planes flying into Washington reported seeing strange glowing objects in places where the radar was getting blips. As on July 20th, the sightings and unknown radar returns ended at sunrise. Across America, the story of jets chasing UFOs over the White House knocked the Korean War and off the front pages of the newspapers. Saucer outran jet, pilot reveals, read the banner headline in the Washington Post. Jets chased D.C. sky ghosts, screened the New York Daily News. Aerial what's-its buzz D.C. again, shouted the Washington Daily News. As rumors spread, President Truman demanded to know what was flying over his house. Soon the federal government was fighting the UFOs with the most powerful weapons in the Washington arsenal. Bureaucracy, obfuscation, and gobbledygook. That seemed to work. The UFOs never returned to D.C. At least if they did, they didn't put on an air show like the one in the summer of 1952. 1952, as the Braxton County Monster told us, was quite a year for UFOs. UFOs shared the April 7, 1952 cover of Life magazine with Marilyn Monroe. Positioned just above Monroe's left shoulder was a cover line touting a different story. There is a case for interplanetary saucers. The article inside was titled, Have We Visitors from Outer Space? And it reviewed 10 recent UFO sightings and concluded that they could not be written off as hallucinations, hoaxes, or earthly aircraft. An unnamed Air Force intelligence officer was quoted saying, The higher you go in the Air Force, the more seriously they take the flying saucers. The story ended with a series of questions that sound like something from an Outer Limits episode. Who or what is aboard? Where do they come from? Why are they here? What are the intentions of the beings who control them? And whoever was asking this was really expecting answers. But those answers weren't coming from anybody. It wasn't the first media account of UFOs. There had been lots of publicity since several well-known sightings in 1947, including the one in Roswell, New Mexico. But the Life article marked the first time that a trusted mainstream magazine had given credence to the theory that UFOs might be alien spacecraft. The Life magazine story was big news and covered in more than 350 newspapers across America. Soon, the number of UFO sightings reported to the Air Force skyrocketed, from 23 in March, before the Life magazine article, to 82 in April, 79 in May, and 148 in June. Were these increases due to saucers swarming over America? Or did Life's story make Americans more likely to report strange things they saw in the sky? And that brings us to Project Blue Book. We've mentioned Project Blue Book a few times in the course of this story, but this is as good a time as any to explain exactly what it was and just how important it is to linking all these 1952 sightings. 
as well as being able to track the rise in sightings since the detonation of the first atomic bomb, which brought Earth out of the darkness and into the space age as a newborn interstellar entity, so to speak. Project Blue Book was, and we say was, because it's no longer being used, one of a series of systematic studies of unidentified flying objects conducted by the U.S. Air Force. It started in 1952, and there's our title year again, and it was actually the third study of its kind. The first two were Project Sign, S-I-G-N, in 1947, and Project Grudge in 1949. Notice that the government began the program the same year that those innocent weather balloons crashed in Roswell and left all that wreckage scattered for half a mile across the desert sands. A story you rarely hear about, which also prompted Project Blue Book, was the Kenneth Arnold Report. We'll get to that story in a minute. Project Blue Book had two goals. One, to determine if UFOs were a real threat, and two, to scientifically analyze UFO data. Thousands of UFO reports were collected, analyzed, and filed. Project Blue Book was ordered closed in 1969 when the government decided there was no use in collecting taxpayer dollars for a project that had collected 12,618 reports, most of which they said could be explained away as owls, meteors, mass hysteria, and escape parade floats, and those that couldn't be explained by the best of the debunkers. Well, the Air Force wasn't getting paid to give opinions or share results of crashes, so that left the Air Force holding the bag with a bunch of classified information that wasn't helping anyone. Any really good stuff in terms of propulsion or design was sent to Wright-Patterson. Any contact with funny-looking beings wouldn't be believed anyway. To note, there had been a number of sightings in the U.S., really beginning in 1947, just a few weeks before Roswell. And the one that really grabbed the military's attention was the Kenneth Arnold Report, the one I just mentioned. To this day, one of the most believable UFO sightings ever recorded. And here's what happened. The Kenneth Arnold UFO sighting occurred on June 24, 1947, just before Roswell when private pilot Kenneth Arnold claimed that he saw a string of nine shiny, unidentified flying objects flying past Mount Rainier at speeds that Arnold estimated at a minimum of 1,200 miles per hour. This was the first post-war sighting in the United States that garnered nationwide news coverage and is credited with being the first of the modern era of UFO sightings, including numerous reported sightings over the next two to three weeks. Arnold's description of the objects also led to the press quickly coining the terms flying saucer and flying disc as popular descriptive terms for UFOs. On June 24, 1947, Arnold was flying from Chehalis, Washington to Yakima, Washington in a Call Air A-2 on a business trip. He made a brief detour after learning of a $5,000 reward for the discovery of a U.S. Marine Corps C-46 transport airplane that had crashed near Mount Rainier. The skies were completely clear, and there was a mild wind, so it was a good situation for a little searching. A few minutes before 3 p.m., at about 9,200 feet, and near Mineral, Washington, he gave up his search and started heading eastward towards Yakima. He then saw a bright, flashing light, similar to sunlight reflecting from a mirror. Afraid he might be dangerously close to another aircraft, Arnold scanned the skies around him, but all he could see was a DC-4 to his left and behind him, about 15 miles away. About 30 seconds after seeing the first flash of light, Arnold saw a series of bright flashes in the distance off to his left, or north of Mount Rainier, 
which was then 20 to 25 miles away. He thought they might be reflections on his airplane's windows, but a few quick tests, rocking his airplane from side to side, removing his eyeglasses, later rolling down his side window, ruled this out. The reflections were coming from flying objects. They flew in a long chain, and Arnold for a moment considered they might be a flock of geese, but quickly ruled this out for a number of reasons, including the altitude, bright glint, and obviously very fast speed. He then thought they might be a new type of jet and started looking intently for a tail, and was surprised that he couldn't find any. They quickly approached Rainier and then passed in front, usually appearing dark in profile against the bright white snowfield covering Rainier, but occasionally still giving off bright light flashes as they flipped around erratically. Sometimes he said he could see them on edge when they seemed so thin and flat that they were practically invisible. According to Jerome Clark, Arnold described them as a series of objects with convex shapes, though he later revealed that one object differed by being crescent-shaped. Several years later, Arnold would state he likened their movement to saucers skipping on water, without comparing their actual shapes to saucers. But initial quotes from him do indeed have in comparing the shape to like a saucer, a disc, a pie pan, or half moon, or generally convex and thin. At one point, Arnold said they flew behind a sub-peak of Rainier and briefly disappeared. You know, in his position and the position of the unspecified sub-peak, Arnold placed their distance as they flew past at about 23 miles. Using a Zeus cowling fastener as a gauge to compare the nine objects to the distant DC-4, Arnold estimated their angular size as slightly smaller than the DC-4, about the width between the outer engines, which would be about 60 feet. Arnold also said he realized that the objects would have to be quite large in order for him to see any details at that distance, and later, after comparing notes with the United Airlines crew that had a similar sighting 10 days later, placed the absolute size as larger than a DC-4 airliner, or greater than 100 feet in length. Army Air Force analysts would later estimate 140 to 280 feet in length based on the analysis of human visual acuity and other sighting details, such as estimated distance. Arnold said the objects were grouped together, as Ted Blocher writes, in a diagonally stepped-down echelon formation, stretched out over a distance that he later calculated to be five miles, though moving on a more or less horizontal plane. Arnold said the objects weaved from side to side, like the tail of a Chinese kite, as he later stated, darting through the valleys and around the smaller mountain peaks. They would occasionally flip or bank on their edges in unison as they turned or maneuvered, causing almost blindingly bright or mirror-like flashes of light. The encounter gave him an eerie feeling, but Arnold suspected he had seen test flights of a new U.S. military aircraft. As the objects passed Mount Rainier, Arnold turned his plane southward on a more or less parallel course. It was at this point that he opened his side window and began observing the objects unobstructed by any glass that could have produced reflections. The objects did not disappear and continued to move very rapidly southward, continuously moving forward of his position. Curious about their speed, he began to time their rate of passage. He said they moved from Mount Rainier to Mount Adams, where they faded from view, a distance of about 50 miles in 1 minute and 42 seconds, according to the clock on his instrument panel. When he later had time to do the calculation, that speed showed to be 1,700 miles per hour. This was about three times faster than any manned aircraft could go in 1947. Not knowing exactly the distance where the objects faded from view, 
Arnold conservatively and arbitrarily rounded this down to 1,200 miles an hour, still faster than any known aircraft, which had yet to break the sound barrier in 1947. It was this supersonic speed, in addition to the unusual saucer or disc description, that seemed to capture people's attention. Arnold landed in Yakima at about 4 p.m. and quickly told friend and airport general manager Al Baxter the amazing story. And before long, the entire airport staff knew of Arnold's claims. He discussed the story with the staff and later wrote that Baxter didn't believe him. Arnold flew onto an air show in Pendleton, Oregon, not knowing that somebody in Yakima had phoned in ahead to say that Arnold had seen some strange new aircraft. It was at this time that Arnold studied his maps, determined the distance between Mount Rainier and Mount Adams, and calculated the rather astonishing speed. He told a number of pilot friends and wrote in his account to AAF Intelligence that they did not scoff or laugh. Instead, they suggested that maybe he had seen guided missiles or something new, though Arnold felt this explanation to be inadequate. He also wrote that some former Army pilots had told him that they had been briefed before going into combat, quote, that they might see objects of similar shape and design as I described and assured me that I wasn't dreaming or going crazy, end quote. Arnold wasn't interviewed by reporters until the next day, June 25, 1947, when he went to the office of the East Oregonian in Pendleton. Any skepticism the reporters might have harbored evaporated when they interviewed Arnold at length, as historian Mike Dash records here. Arnold had the makings of a reliable witness. He was a respected businessman and experienced pilot, and seemed to be neither exaggerating what he had seen nor adding sensational details to his report. He also gave the impression of being a careful observer. These details impressed the newspapermen who interviewed him and lent credibility to his report. Arnold would soon complain about the effects of the publicity on his life. On June 27th, he was reported saying, quote, I haven't had a moment of peace since I first told the story. End quote. He then said a preacher had called and told him that the objects he saw were harbingers of doomsday and that the preacher was preparing his congregation for the end of the world. In another encounter, a woman in a Pendleton cafe noticed him and dashed out shrieking, There's the man who saw the men from Mars. She ran out sobbing that she would have to do something for the children, Arnold was reported as saying, with a shudder. He then added that, This whole thing has gotten out of hand. I want to talk to the FBI or someone. Half the people look at me as a combination of Einstein, Flash Gordon, and Screwball. I wonder what my wife back in Idaho thinks. So when Project Blue Book began its first iteration, named Project Sign, at the end of 1947, it really did begin with the honest intention of getting to the bottom of the UFO phenomena. It was initiated at the request of General Nathan Twining, Chief of Air Force Material Command at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and their initial intelligence estimate, offered after one year of study in the late summer of 1948, called the Estimate of the Situation, concluded that flying saucers were real craft and not made by either the Soviet Union or the U.S. and were likely extraterrestrial in origin. This report was made within days of another 1948 encounter named the Childs Witted UFO Near Miss, in which two airline pilots claimed that a torpedo-shaped object nearly collided with their commercial airplane. The object perfectly matched that of one seen by The Hague just two days before. The friendly skies were busy again in 1948. 
that shape was literally a flying fuselage. Surprisingly, there have been a lot of sightings of this type of UFO. Michael D. Swords, retired professor of natural sciences at Western Michigan University, was involved with this and said that Project Sign had investigated these sightings, especially the Child's Witted sighting, which intrigued the experts, who knew that the Prandtl theory of lift indicated that this odd shape could fly, but that it would need some form of power plant advanced well beyond what we could build. And if you ask yourself, to what purpose would that particular shape suit itself? It doesn't seem as aerodynamic as a disk shape, but apparently it is. Estimate of the situation was forwarded to the Pentagon, and just as quickly ordered destroyed by General Hoyt Vandenberg, United States Air Force Chief of Staff at that time, citing a lack of physical proof. That started the figurative fists flying between Washington and the guys trying to tell what they believed was the truth, and Project Sign was replaced with Project Grudge in 1949, which is easy to remember as Project Grinch because they took an opposite stance, even going so far as to purposely hide information and create a team of debunkers to counter any information that went to the media. The next two years of grudge put a serious dent in UFO studies. And that brings us full circle to 1952. We've made frequent references to the work of Frank Faschino, the independent investigator who spent years researching and digging into the Braxton County monster story and discovering how that was connected to a series of UFO sightings and events that had occurred in the weeks previous to the Flatwoods-Braxton County Close Encounter. Without his tireless efforts that lit the way for others, we might never have known about the missing F-94 jet pilots, the military's orders to aggressively confront UFOs after the Washington flap, the tracking of three UFOs from the East Coast to West Virginia and Ohio, and how all this came together to cause either one or two damaged UFOs to land in West Virginia and others to explode in midair. The really good details fill his book from front to back, but we'll share an outline here based on information he made public through his many interviews on the subject. 1991 was the year that Frank Faschino began to compile research on the story of the Braxton County Monster, also called the Flatwoods Monster and he was immediately fascinated with the credibility of the witnesses and the uniqueness of the story. He started to compile stacks of information, from interviews, newspaper clippings, government files, and much more. He discovered that there were a total of 116 locations, all but one located in 10 eastern states, in which UFOs were sighted that day, September 12, 1952 and that there was and still is a major government cover-up led by the U.S. Air Force regarding the events of that day and of all UFO sightings and retrievals that carry any light of truth. His research involves literally hundreds of witnesses across the U.S. who saw UFOs, not meteors, not weather balloons, not barn owls, not floating dairy cows that escaped from their tethers at a Wisconsin fairground but unidentified flying objects that were described in painstaking detail, flying, landing, and sometimes exploding and crashing, while trying to stay below radar in the hill country of West Virginia. The sightings and activities spanned a period of just over 21 hours on that day, and involved different objects on different flight paths. These were reported by civilians and military and law enforcement personnel to a variety of outlets, starting with the Pentagon, multiple Air Force bases, Air National Guard, and continuing through multiple Air Force bases, 
various government offices, newspapers and radio stations, airports and police stations. The official explanation that came back from the Air Force was that they had all seen a meteor fireball that began in Washington, D.C. and ended in West Virginia. We know from research that the longest meteor fireball ever recorded being seen was nine seconds in duration. So how the United States Air Force could tell us with certainty that for a period of 21 hours, hundreds of people in 116 locations were witnessing a meteor boggles the mind. The United States Air Force lost a lot of credibility in 1952, becoming no doubt the laughingstock of many outraged witnesses. My guess is that by the early 50s, the United States Air Force was wishing that they had not been given the assignment of having to report anything to the public. Fashino was on a mission to blow up the Air Force explanation and restore some truth to the events of that day. He used the hundreds of eyewitness accounts from the 116 locations and literally plotted them on regional topographic maps, noting them by time and location. He then transferred them to a much larger map, and that's when an incredible picture began to emerge. Staring back at him were the detailed flight paths of what he determined to be three UFOs heading east to west from the Atlantic coast toward West Virginia and Ohio. Each flight path was clearly indicated by the sightings that had been called in. As these crafts approached West Virginia, it looked as if they were flying in a search pattern, keeping about five miles apart. Vecino now believes that these craft were on a search mission for crafts or occupants of crafts that had been downed, likely by our jet fighters. As you recall from Part 1, The Braxton County Monster, Ivan Sanderson had guessed that chemical dust clouds emanating from the chemical plants in West Virginia might have been the cause of the crashes. Fashino's recently updated book, which I highly recommend, and the link is available in our show notes, makes a strong case that U.S. jet fighters had been ordered to destroy UFOs if they could. These craft, according to the radar operators at Andrews Air Force Base, during those two hot weekends in July of 1952, could change direction on a dime and had been clocked by at least one radar operator in D.C. to have speeds of 1,300 miles per hour, more than three times the speed of anything we were putting in the air at that time. They could also appear and disappear from the skies in seconds, as they had known to have done when F-94 jets were scrambled out of Delaware just weeks before. The Washington UFOs disappeared when the jets came close and reappeared when they gave up looking. Well-known UFO expert Linda Moulton Howe on her blog earthfile.com shared the results of her 2004 interview with Frank Faschino, which included the question, what would be so sensitive that the U.S. military would not want anyone to know? To which Faschino replied, that our aircraft are being shot out of the skies by UFOs, which, you have to admit, is a great conversation starter, obviously begging for details. One of the many news clippings he shared with Linda was written September 16, 1952, in the Daytona Beach News, entitled, Lost Pilot Was From Sanford, Air Force Reports, that being Sanford, Florida. AP, Panama City. The Air Force yesterday identified a jet pilot and radio operator missing since Friday in a flight from Tyndall Air Force Base here to McDill Field in Tampa. Ficino also found that three jets had taken off and not only was one plane missing, but the other two were never reported as having returned. The Lockheed F-94 Starfire carried rockets called Aeromite 2.75 folding fin aerial rockets, fitted with explosive warheads. Another September 14th 
1952 article from the News Herald in Panama City, Florida, identified the missing pilot as 2nd Lieutenant John E. Jones of Sanford, Florida, and radar operator 2nd Lieutenant John S. Del Curto of Pine, Oregon, and announced that a wide search had taken place. The plane was obviously equipped with radar, and they had radio communication. A source at McDill told at least one of the newspapers that the pilot had radioed in saying they had run out of gas. This called a flameout, but yet they never bailed out. And how in the world could that plane run out of gas while on a supposedly routine mission between two fairly close Air Force bases? One can only assume they were very busy in the skies doing something. And the next logical conclusion is... And the next logical conclusion, based on all the UFO activity witnessed that day, is that they were chasing UFOs. Then, after the radio message, the plane just disappeared off the radar screens, according to that source. And after September 16th, the Air Force went quiet on the matter. The incident was never mentioned again. The names of the Air Force pilot and radar man were removed from all Air Force files as if they never existed. The other two planes and their crews were removed from all files. But those two days had at least given Faschino two names, and he followed them up. This was now more than 40 years after the incident. He searched both names in Air Force and government records. Johnny Jones, John Del Curto. No birth, no death, no record of service. As far as the Air Force was concerned, they had never lived, and they had certainly never served their country. As Faschino was to discover... Their families said otherwise, beginning with copies of the Western Union telegrams from the United States Air Force at McDill to their families, which announced the men as missing in action. Then you can add a great signed picture of jet pilot John E. Jones sitting in the cockpit of his F-94 wearing a big smile, a picture that he had given to his brother, and similar data from the Del Curto family and brother of John Del Curto. Shockingly, it was only after Frank Faschino published copies of all this proof in his book that the U.S. Air Force admitted the existence of Lieutenants Jones and Del Curto. Amazing. Who says the government can't keep secrets? And ask yourself, what could be so classified in the skies just off the coast of Florida that our government would go to such great lengths to cover up? Barn owls? Meteors? Even the world's biggest skeptic has to ask himself, why would the government do this to these men and their families? Faschino also discovered that there was a shocking number of domestic Air Force fighter planes lost in the early 50s, a number that far outstripped what we had lost in Korea. He believes that in 1952, after the Washington UFO flyovers, the United States Air Force issued orders to shoot to kill any undeclared flying craft. And as you heard a little earlier, he found proof in at least one memorandum that those orders had been issued. How many pilots did we lose, and what happened to their jets? We don't know. But the possibility that they were able to cripple some of the UFOs looms large. As Ivan Sanderson told us, these UFOs at times crashed through treetops, making contact with land, then somehow were able to take off again, only to come down in a fiery ball just miles away. Faschino was able to track three UFOs on September 12, 1952, specifically by following their reports. Craft 1, which was first seen over Baltimore, Maryland, then Catonsville, Frederick, Hagerstown, Cumberland, then across to Morgantown, West Virginia, Fairmount, West Virginia, Columbus, Ohio, then the Wheeling, West Virginia, and Ohio Airport. 
finally crash-landed in, in Ogilvy Park near Wheeling, West Virginia, then passed over Nitro and landed at St. Albans in Charleston, West Virginia, then went down again at South Hills, jumping again to a landing in Walt Powell Park in South Wheeling, and then to Cabin Creek, where that one tried and failed five times to get airborne, then finally left. Or did they? Rumors still exist that our government was able to get to this one, and that there was a dead alien inside. Craft 2 had originally buzzed to D.C., then headed west toward Front Royal, then Elkins, West Virginia, then Burnsville, then over Heaters, and then down at Flatwoods. There seems to be some discrepancies here, as it seems this also may be the one that was spotted in Frametown, just ten miles away from Flatwoods, the one that the Sutton Sheriff and Deputy had gone to check before they responded to the incident at Flatwoods. Rumors exist at Frametown as well, where it was reported that a couple witnessed the craft and a monster at this location from their car, and that the large figure had removed the top half of his suit, revealing a lizard-like head and chest. The bottom half of the suit exactly matched the description of the Flatwoods monster, as seen by the May Group. Craft 3 was first spotted over Roanoke, Virginia, then Pulaski, then Johnson City, Tennessee. It was seen by the Tri-Cities Airport there, then moved on to Kingsport, over Rogersville, and Moccasin Gap, where it went down, then got back up and passed over Wadlow Gap, Tennessee, and Elizabethtown, Tennessee, before disappearing. All three of these crafts were sighted for a period totaling about 35 minutes, and the three had different shapes, according to witnesses. Craft 1 being oval, Craft 2 being round, and the Flatwoods craft being pear-shaped. They seemed to be trying to stay low to avoid radar detection, and were definitely having propulsion difficulties. Caused by what? We can only guess. And now we continue our story. By mid-July 1952, Captain Edward J. Ruppelt, the head of Project Blue Book, the Air Force's official UFO study team, was getting 40 reports of UFO sightings a day. Many were bogus, but some came from pilots and other respectable citizens, and Ruppelt took them seriously. Then, a few days before the first sightings at National Airport, Ruppelt interviewed a government scientist who made a startling prediction that Ruppelt recorded in his 1956 memoir. The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, which is a great book. Within the next few days, the unidentified scientist said, banging his hand on his desk for emphasis, you're going to have the granddaddy of all UFO sightings. The sighting will occur in Washington or New York, probably Washington. Nobody bothered to call Ruppelt about the sightings when they did happen. When he flew to Washington a couple of days later on unrelated Project Blue Book business, he learned about them by reading newspapers at the airport. Radar spots air mystery objects here, ran the headline on the front page of the Washington Post. Air Force saucer expert will probe sightings here, said the Washington Daily News. Ruppelt asked his colleagues who that expert was. You are, they told him. At the Pentagon, Ruppelt found the Air Force brass deeply concerned about one particular aspect of the sightings. What should they tell the press? Nobody had any idea what, if anything, had been in the air over Washington on July 19th, but the newspapers were demanding answers. Reporters, Ruppelt wrote, were now beginning to put on a squeeze by threatening to call congressmen, and nothing chills blood faster in the military. Ruppelt volunteered to stay overnight to interview the controllers at National and Andrews, then report what he learned to the press. 
but Rupel got entangled in the thicket of military bureaucracy. He called the Pentagon's transportation section to get a car so he could travel to the various airports. Only colonels and generals can get cars, he was told. He called two generals, but it was after 4 p.m., and they were gone for the day. He went to the finance office to get permission to rent a car. Take a bus, the woman there told him. It takes a lot of buses to go from the Pentagon to National to Andrews, he replied. Then take a cab, she said, and pay for it out of your per diem. But his per diem was nine dollars, he said, and he had to pay for food and lodging. The woman then informed Rupert that his orders were to fly back to Ohio that night, and unless he got those orders amended, he'd technically be AWOL. He asked to talk to her boss, but he'd left at 4.30 to avoid traffic, she said, and now it was five, and she was leaving too. Rupert gave up. I decided that if flying saucers were buzzing Pennsylvania Avenue, I couldn't care less, he wrote. I caught the next airliner to Dayton. About 10 o'clock Saturday night, July 26th, Rupert was at home in Dayton when a reporter called to say that UFOs were back in the sky over Washington. What, the reporter asked, did the Air Force plan to do about it? I have no idea what the Air Force is doing, Rupert replied. In all probability, it's doing nothing. He hung up, then called the Pentagon, and learned that he was right. The Air Force was doing nothing. He made more calls, dispatching two officers, Major Dewey Fournay and Lieutenant John Holcomb, a radar expert, to National's control tower to see what was happening. Fournay and Holcomb arrived to find National's controllers tracking a dozen unexplained blips. An Air Force B-25 happened to be passing through the area, so the controllers asked it to check out some of the radar targets. The B-25 went to one site and spotted nothing except a tourist boat crossing the Potomac. Perhaps, the controllers surmised, a temperature inversion, a layer of hot air between two layers of colder air in the sky, had bent the radar beam, causing it to mistake objects on the ground for things in the air. Temperature inversions were common in Washington on hot days, and the controllers were familiar with the phenomenon. But Fournay and Holcomb were convinced that some of the radar blips were solid metal objects, not inversion-induced mirages. Radar operators at Andrews saw them, too. And civilian planes flying into Washington reported seeing strange glowing objects in places where the radar was getting blips. The controllers called for interceptors, and about 11 p.m., the Air Force dispatched F-94s to search the sky over Washington. When the jets first arrived, the blips disappeared from National's radar screens, and the F-94 pilots saw nothing unusual. But when they returned to Newcastle, the blips returned to the radar screens. About 1.30 a.m., the jets soared back over Washington. This time, pilots saw several strange lights. One pilot gave chase, but he couldn't catch the streaking light. I tried to make contact with the bogies below 1,000 feet, pilot William Patterson told investigators. On Monday morning, the story of UFOs outrunning fighter planes was splashed across front pages all over America. In Iowa, the headline in the Cedar Rapids Gazette read like something out of a sci-fi flick. Saucers swarm over Capitol. We have no evidence that they're flying saucers, an unidentified Air Force source told reporters. Conversely, we have no evidence they are not flying saucers. We don't know what they are. 
In the absence of hard information, the Washington Daily News printed a roundup of rumors. The most persistent rumor was that the saucers were American aircraft secretly produced by Boeing at some remote site. An absolutely weird rumor was that the saucers were alien aircraft that had crashed and then been repaired and flown by the Air Force. That Monday, the Air Force tried to reassure the nation by promising to keep jet fighters poised to chase the saucers at a moment's notice. But that statement didn't reassure Robert L. Farnsworth, president of the United States Rocket Society, who warned President Truman not to attack the UFOs. Should they be extraterrestrial, such actions might result in the gravest consequences, as well as possibly alienating us from beings of far superior powers, Farnsworth telegraphed Truman. Friendly contact should be sought as long as possible. Truman was as baffled as anyone else. He asked his Air Force aide, Brigadier General Robert B. Landry, to find out what the UFOs were. On Tuesday morning, Landry called Ruppelt, who now had flown back to the Pentagon. Ruppelt said the sightings might be weather-related mirages, but he really didn't know. Nobody knew, not even Major General John Samford, the Air Force's Director of Intelligence. But Samford called a press conference at the Pentagon at 4 o'clock Tuesday afternoon. It was the largest Pentagon press conference since World War II, Ruppelt wrote in his book, and Samford's performance proved to be a brilliant demonstration of the art of bureaucratic balderdash. He arrived in room 3E869 precisely at 4, accompanied by Ruppelt and several other officials. He opened with a rambling monologue on the history of UFOs, which, he noted, dated back to biblical times. He mentioned UFO sightings in 1846, but never got around to the UFO sightings of 1952. When reporters asked about the Washington sightings, Samford told a story about radar picking up a flock of ducks in Japan in 1950. When reporters asked if radar at National and Andrews had seen the same blips simultaneously, he speculated about the definition of the word simultaneously. When they asked if the UFOs could be material objects, he mused about the definition of the word material. When they asked if the F-94 pilot who chased the strange light was a qualified observer, he wondered about the meaning of the word qualified. He was very obviously being extremely diffuse and trying not to make enemies by saying anything he could be taken to task for later. As many of you probably already know, this is pretty typical in government and corporate bureaucracies. Everyone is too concerned with their own image and their own career to get anything concrete done. They don't want to be the first one to put a foot forward. Speaking about what that pilot saw, Samford uttered a sentence that ought to have a place in the bureaucratic gibberish hall of fame. This will have you shaking your heads. Quote, that very likely is one that sets apart and says insufficient measurement, insufficient association with other things, insufficient association with other probabilities for it to do any more than join that group of sightings that we still hold in front of us as saying no. Along the way, Samford, desperate now for a story he could survive with, mentioned the temperature inversion theory, that a layer of hot air in the sky might have caused radar to mistake things on the ground for flying objects. First he said it was a possibility. Later he said it was about a 50-50 proposition. And even later he said it was a probable explanation. He talked until 5.20. Then the reporters dashed back to their offices to meet their deadlines. Sifting through notebooks full of gobbledygook, they seized on temperature inversion. 
It was an irresistible concept for newspapermen. The UFOs, they wrote, were caused by Washington's famous hot air. Rupert was amazed. Sanford hadn't really explained anything, but whatever he had done, it worked. This event may have marked the beginning of what we've come to expect from most of the media today. Somehow, Rupert wrote, out of this chaotic situation came exactly the result that was intended. The press got off our backs. When newspapers stopped writing about the UFOs, people stopped reporting UFOs. Reports dropped from 50 per day to 10 a day within a week, Ruppelt noted. In 1952, several high-ranking U.S. Air Force generals deep-sixed Project Grudge and replaced it with Project Blue Book. The generals were Charles B. Cabell and General William Garland, who had witnessed a UFO himself and felt the matter deserved legitimate scrutiny. They made Captain Edward J. Ruppelt head of the project and sent him up to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. Ruppelt, a decorated World War II Army Air Corps flyer, is credited as the guy who gave us the term UFO, Unidentified Flying Object. He streamlined the project, then commissioned the Battelle Memorial Institute, which you heard mentioned in the Stanton Friedman interview we just aired, as being the ones who did the massive study of all the UFO cases which were printed into Project Blue Book's special report number 14. After Project Blue Book was canceled, the Air Force did continue with a program, but the program was kept highly classified. Years later, it was discovered and the name of it was Majestic 12. Here's some words on that program from last week's guest, Stanton Friedman. Uh, I, I went through times and uh, was very concerned about uh, making sure I didn't say anything in the wrong place and don't take classified work home and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, I still get a kick out of people saying, well, surely the people involved in Operation Majestic 12, which I think was real, uh, would have told their wives what they were doing. Never! Could you share a little bit about that? Well, yeah, we got all the film in the mail, which had some documents, and then we got there later lots of documents, and many of them are phony. But the, ba- the, the three important ones aren't, and the most important one is uh, the memo which describes the establishment of this group called Operation Majestic 12. Uh, scientists, uh, a very impressive group of people. I was well aware of some of the people. I didn't know they were part of this, but uh, uh, very impressive. And uh, I wrote a whole book, Top Secret Magic, M-A-J-I-C, about that and what I did to find out uh, you know, whether the doc, any of the documents uh, were legitimate or not. And uh, well, to give you an example, one of, one of the uh, big debunkers, a uh, man named Philip Klass, a senior avionics editor for Aviation Week and Space Technology. Oh, that document's uh, a memo from Bobby Cutler, who worked for Ike, uh, to General Twining. Uh, well, it's obviously a fraud because they used the large pica type. And uh, the National Security Agency used only elite type, uh, words to that effect. And so he challenged me. I'll pay you $100 for every genuine memo done in the same size and style type. A bunch of other criteria. Uh, up to a maximum of 10 only. And so I, he had never been to the Eisenhower Library. I didn't know that until later. But I've been at 20 archives and spent weeks there. 
And so I did a lot of research. I, first I went to my files and I found plenty of documents done in the same size and style and type. And then I dug out, when I went to the Eisner Library, I dug out a bunch more. And I gave him copies and sent him an invoice, and he paid me. He said a limit of 10 so $1,000, and he paid me. <laughs> uh, he obviously was convinced, and I, you know, one, one of the big surprises was that one of the members of the group was Dr. Donald Howard Menzel, a Harvard University professor of astronomy, a member of the National Academy of Sciences, and a, supposedly a UFO debunker. He'd written three anti-UFO books. And to make a long story short, I was able to determine, by getting permission from three different people to look at Menzel's papers at Harvard, uh, and found out that uh, he was doing classified work all over the place. And he knew JFK. They even had breakfast together on occasion. I, I was totally surprised. For, for the benefit of our audience, what was uh, Magic 12? That was the name of the group, uh, Majestic 12. And the security marking was uh, top secret magic. And they were accountable only to the president. And they collected data from all over on flying saucers. Uh, What was extraordinary is the broad breadth of the group. And when you stop to think about it, it made sense that uh, you'd have one group, not Army, Navy, Air Force. In other words, you'd have a centralized group that did the the hard, slogging, scientific work to look at the best cases and try to learn from them. Uh, it, it was a very impressive group. Uh, one of the big wheels in it was Dr. Vannevar Bush, who was the science advisor to the president during the war. Uh, and it was a very impressive group of people. In what years did they did that exist? Well, we don't know when they went out of business. That name probably got changed. We didn't hear about it until the 80s, okay. uh, when Truman was president, okay. and after Roswell and stuff. Uh, and I, I was, I was so surprised, mainly because I didn't like Menzel before I knew about all his activity. And then it turns out he was a world-class cryptologist, code breaker, code maker. Huh. Nobody knew that. It was a good example of somebody keeping secrets. His wife didn't know anything about his classified work. I talked to her, talked to people who worked for him. And so Majestic 12, it was an eye-opener. The breadth of the people, Army, Navy, Air Force, uh, the caliber of the people, and it made sense. I I advised people, not, not just because I wrote a book about it, but find out about Majestic 12. And there are all kinds of arguments made against him because they couldn't have kept secret. Menzel couldn't have known anything. He, he was just uh, an astronomer and so forth. And, you know, people forget there were German spies who were heavily involved in work, you know, telling the other side what was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Burgess, Philby, and McLean, uh, Kim Philby and others, uh, you know, there's a secret world out there. You know, whether we like it or not is beside the point. But uh, MJ-12 is an outstanding group of people who performed a real service for their country. And uh, what was the line? I can tell you more when we are properly cleared to each other. Uh, what can I tell you? That tells it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it sure does. 
of all the projects you've dug your teeth into, uh, done research on, uh, lectured about, interviewed with people, traveled the country, what were probably the most exciting top three that you've done with respect to UFOs? Well, certainly Majestic 12 is one of them, only because it had so many surprises because they didn't know anything about it. You know, nobody had heard about it, and suddenly, uh, whoops, uh, <laughs> I st- still don't know who sent the roll of film. Uh, Roswell was certainly one of them because, again, it's a, such a surprise. Uh, and when I looked at the politics, that the base at Roswell was the home, I mean, they had a 13,000-foot runway, would you believe, which was huge, because it was the home of the 509th. They were the most elite military group in the world. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if aliens were interested in what was going on there. They're the guys who dropped the atomic bombs on Japan. And when I found how many people were involved and so forth, uh, I'll, I'll be in Roswell, as I said, in a couple of weeks, well, three weeks, I guess, uh, for the annual festival. Probably my last visit there, because I'm retiring this year, finally. <coughs> and, uh, Congratulations. You're 39, right? Well, a little closer to 84, which will be in July. <laughs> An honest but, you know, it, it's been a kick. Uh, I've met so many wonderful people. I've been to 20 archives and digging into other people's paper. I, I find that's great, finding secrets and stuff I didn't know and all that sort of stuff. And then there's the challenge well, how could they do this or that? Mm-hmm. You know, I dug into, I did a, uh, a literature search on magneto uh, aerodynamics, and I was astonished to find 900 references. Wow. That would be a fascinating about, subject. Well, it was, and 90% were classified. I only <laughs> had abstracts. I had a clearance. Uh, it was a study I did for, it was an Air Force contract that we had. But it was just an enormous amount of information, uh, most of it classified. Look, as I keep telling people, progress comes from doing things differently in an unpredictable way. If everything stayed the same, there wouldn't be a problem. But things don't stay the same. The equipment, the capabilities, the ability to do this, that, or the other thing. Uh, breaking codes. Look, we had Bletchley Park in England. 12,000 people worked there mm. during World War II to break the German codes. 12,000 people. And it was so important that we know when they were going to be sending airplanes hither, thither, or yon, and that they not know we know. You know, you got both things going. Uh, because then they would change the codes. So, uh, there are extraordinary stories here. I want to, there really are. I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the show at 1001 Heroes. It's been a, it's been a huge pleasure and, and privilege having the opportunity to speak with you today. Is there anything you want to uh, wrap up with with regard to our Well, I, I just say people can go to my website, okay. www.stantonfriedman.com. It'll show my books, uh, where to get more information about some of the things we've talked about already. 
and I get a kick out of that. I respond, I'm, I'm a one-man operation, so there's nobody who sits in and says, oh, we don't want to pass this on. You know, I read them all. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, thank you so very much. We're very proud to have you. Um, but thanks. It, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And, and also thanks to your wife for, for bringing in the cavalry earlier on. <laughs> okay. Trying to thank help you. us out. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. At Flatwoods, not much has changed. The Flatwoods Monster Chair, using the fancified version of the Braxton County Monster that included clawed hands and a green skirt, still welcomes visitors near the town hall. Local officials have erected a welcome to Flatwoods, home of the Braxton County Monster sign, on the highway leading into town. In celebration of the legend, note that it has slipped to legend status, the Braxton County Convention and Visitor Center built a series of five tall chairs in the shape of a monster to serve as landmarks and visitor attractions. The town of Flatwoods also houses a museum dedicated to the monster legend and offers promotional merchandise. The Bureau regards visitors who find and photograph all five chairs with free Braxy stickers as part of their ongoing promotion. The monster legend used to be celebrated every year when the town of Flatwoods held its annual festival called Flatwoods Days. The three-day festival was a weekend of live music and food and craft vendors. Skeptics continue to debunk what happened that night of September 12, 1952, saying that an owl scared the pants off the little group that climbed the hill that night. Hysteria made Gene Lemon and some of the boys sick. The oily substance that was spit all over them was probably from the owl. The flaming object that landed on the Bailey Fisher farm was a meteor, or the group totally made up the story, pick one. The monster was a barn owl. The collie dog that ran home and vomited all over his veranda and then died, probably died from a tick bite. All that other stuff, the hundreds of sightings, the crashes, the missing F-94, were all media-related, except for the jet, which didn't exist in the first place. The newspapers made that up, and the relatives were lying. The Air Force's failure to recognize the names of the pilot and radar man as having existed until Frank Faschino printed his book, was sheer coincidence due to temporarily missing files that were suddenly discovered when his book was published with their names included. I googled the Flatwoods Days Festival, and unless I'm wrong, and I could be, it looks like they are no more. It seems as though they changed the name to West Virginia Day Festival in Flatwoods, and that the last one was in 2017. It seems that one of the most famous and most witnessed close encounters in U.S. history is slipping into the realm of legends and tales. It looks like the debunkers and skeptics are winning this battle. But fear not, believers. One day, it will all come to light. It will seem like no one ever doubted that it happened. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Be sure to catch our other shows. In fact, you can get all four at one website, 1001storiesnetwork.com. That's 1001storiesnetwork.com. And enjoy a whole bunch of 1001 every week. Thank you for your great reviews and for sharing this with friends. That's how we grow. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. <laughs>